Well, good morning. It's good to see everybody. And um, as we're getting started, we're doing a series called The Ancient Past. The Ancient Past, if you have a Bible, uh, grab it and turn it to Acts chapter 2. And today we're talking about fellowship. Acts chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible, uh, I believe, in the pews, uh, great uh, Bibles, and um, you can grab that, mark in it, write in it, uh, do whatever you want to uh, in it, except for spit on it or rip it up or something like that. Um, Ancient past is based off of uh, Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 16, where God says to the uh, prophet, stand by the roads and look. And ask for the ancient pass where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. And so God calls all his people and everybody everywhere to walk in the ancient past, not the new past, not the modern past, not the postmodern past, not the hit past or the spectacular roads of our world. See, those things don't last, but the ancient past that have always been there will always be there. And so what we're talking about last week, we talked about scripture. Today, we're talking about fellowship. Next week, we're talking about prayer, and then we'll talk about outreach and evangelism. And so today is fellowship. Walk in the ancient past. Let us walk in fellowship. And my text, my passage, uh, what I want to talk from is Acts chapter 2, verses 42 and following. And I would like to go ahead and read this passage, and then I'll pray for a message, all right? Acts chapter 2, verses 42 and following. Walk in the ancient past. Today we're talking about the ancient path of fellowship. Verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together... And breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that, um, that you are the God of community and fellowship, that you are the God moved along by prompted by, you change by the very concept of love and relationship. And you are love. And uh, we thank you that you've created the church, which is called to be a fellowship of believers, a community for people that proclaims the gospel of Jesus, death and resurrection. And uh, I just pray you'll help me get out of the way. Give us all ears to hear. Move in our lives. And um, I expect you to do great things in the life of Crosspoint, not because we're strong enough, but because you are good and powerful. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. In our passage, the operative words that we're looking at, obviously, verse 42, you see the word fellowship. Everybody go ahead and say it. Fellowship. Very good. All right. That sunny day's got you all energetic today. That's good. All right. So you got fellowship. And then you got verse 44 where it says together. Everybody say together. Together. You sound fantastic. And then in verse 46, it says again together. So say it again. 
All right, so this is a passage about togetherness. What is fellowship? Fellowship is just a powerful togetherness. Fellowship is a partnership or a participation together for a common purpose or for a common good. Fellowship is not just being in each other's presence. Fellowship is being in each other's presence and going in the same direction. The word fellowship comes from a Greek word called koinonia, and it was used in the kind of the New Testament times for a business partnership. So if you and I, for example, wanted to go into the fishing business in the New Testament times, and we said, hey, let's have a partnership, we would use the Greek word koinonia. Say, so let's, let's come into koinonia for the purpose of partnering for business. Or another way that fellowship was used was, hey, let's, re- let's bring relief or contribute to the needs of the poor. So we would say, hey, let's, uh, you know, Bob over there is going through the hurricane right now, which we need to be praying for those people on the East Coast, right? I used to live in Boston, never worried about a hurricane there. And they're worrying about it this morning. I got friends there and everything like that. So uh, let's be praying for them. But let's say, Bob, we know he's about to get his roof blown off, right? And we're like, you know, hey, man, let's help out Bob. But I can't help out Bob by myself. If you and I come into uh, participation together, we can join our resources and go together to help Bob That's fellowship. See, it's bringing relief to people. Or also fellowship was participating together in spiritual uh, religious services. So all of the religions of the New Testament time use this word to describe formally coming together and expressing their spirituality. Whether true or false, that was the way the word was used, was fellowship. So When we talk about fellowship, understand something. We're not talking about youth group and pizzas and Coke, amen? We're we're not talking about like, like, hey, let's get together at Pizza Hut and like just talk. You know what I mean? We aren't talking about just superficial getting together. We're talking about like the most powerful concepts of participation and relationship and partnership and, and living our life together on purpose kind of thing. That's the concept that we're getting from the biblical word fellowship. It's togetherness, but you're really together. You're really together. And there's nothing worse in the world than when you're together, but you're not really together. You know what I'm saying? I mean, you and I might be hanging out, but we don't, but if we're not really together in common purpose, we're not having fellowship, you see. It, it happens in, in marriage all the time. We're, we're together, we're in each other's presence, but we're not really there. It happens to me all the time with my wife. Like my, Sherry will say to me, she'll be talking, boop, 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 talk, 30 minutes of talking, I'm not doing any talking, and she says, did you hear a word I said? And I say, uh, right? And then she starts testing me, like, what did I say? Right? And I always say, I didn't know our relationship was an exam. <laughs> you know what I mean? I don't really say that. I just lied, which is really bad that a pastor just lied. That's just horrible. Pray for me. Right? You understand, though, right? It's really hard to really be together with another person. Consider the Boston Globe. It says this about men and women. Women, you... <laughs> Women use 20,000 words every day on average. Men use 7,000. 
It's a little hard to get together all the time, right? You got to work at fellowship. You got to work at togetherness. And here's what's even sadder when a church is together, but you're not really together, right? Like, like we're in the same room every Sunday, but we're not really like in a partnership. We're not really, really in relationship with each other. We're just kind of playing a church game, right? There's nothing worse than that. What's real church fellowship? What, what is the measure? What, what is the measure of how do we know when we're really together? I mean, really together. And Acts chapter 2 tells us. It tells us how to measure our fellowship. It tells us if, if we're really tracking, if our trajectory is going like this, or if our trajectory is going like that. It's a model. It's, it's an example. And so it's really exciting because we can measure our spiritual lives together as a church. How do we do real fellowship as a church? How do we do it in the way that God wants us to do it? And I have three observations that help us to kind of understand if we're really in fellowship together. Now, the context of Acts chapter 2 is just, it's awesome. There's two things we learn about God in Acts chapter 2. Number one, he wants, he wants to be understood. He wants to be understood. Remember, all these nations in Acts chapter 2, here's the context. All the nations have come together for a religious service in Jerusalem called the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost. So all these people from all over the Roman Empire are descending on Jerusalem for this religious festival. A lot of food. It's like Thanksgiving on steroids with 2 million people in Jerusalem, okay? They're all over. Holy Spirit, though, in the meantime, there's 120 Christians after the resurrection ascension. They're waiting in a room. Holy Spirit comes down. They start praising God in tongues, and the tongues meant that they spoke languages of all of the people who were there, all the diverse languages. It's a miraculous occasion when they started praising God in the languages of the people who were already there. And so people could understand the gospel of Jesus. Isn't that cool? God wants to be understood by people who don't know him. You say, I don't know God. God wants you to know him. God wants to be in a relationship. God wants to have fellowship with you. You say, I, I, never, I never knew that God wanted to have fellowship. Well, he does. He wants to be understood. That's the concept of Acts. And here's the second thing, that God brings his people together. God brings his people together to be a fellowship. And so 3,000 people become Christians in one day. That's a good day of ministry. But how in the world do you manage it? I mean, what computer software were they using to manage all these people? And so verses 42 and following talk about what these 3,000 people did to really have fellowship. Here's the first thing. My first observation about real fellowship is this. They participated together in the public worship of Jesus. They participated together in the public worship of Jesus. Mark Driscoll, a pastor out of Seattle, he tweeted this week. He said, quote, Jesus saves individuals and connects them to community to be the people of God, not the individuals of God. 
A lot of expressions of Christianity are individualistic. Why? Because they're mirroring American culture and society, which is individualistic. Like, I'll do my own thing. I'll have my own life. I'll be me. It's me and Jesus. But here, what we learn is that Jesus saves people to connect them to community, to be the people of God, not the individuals of God. You are not the individuals of God. You are the people of God. Now, we're not tracking in fellowship, and we're not, we're not really on our way to being together until we understand that God is creating a people. He always has. He always has created a people. And so they're, they're worshiping together publicly Jesus Christ. You say, well, how do they worship Jesus? Well, it's found in verse 42. Look at it. These are the things. They do four things to publicly worship Jesus together. It says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. You see those four things? There's teaching, there's fellowship, there's breaking of, of bread, and there's prayers. What's, what's, uh, what's the apostles' teaching? It's the teaching of Jesus. Jesus had told the apostles in Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, he said, look, here's the deal. I want you to go out, baptize all nations in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and I want you to teach them to observe all All that I have commanded you. Jesus said in John 14, verses 23 and following, I will send the Holy Spirit and he will help you to remember my teaching, my words, what I've taught you. He will bring to mind all the things I've taught you so that you can teach other people. And so what the apostles are doing is they are rehearsing for the people the life of Jesus the words of Jesus, the, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. No doubt Peter's talking about the story when he was walking on water with Jesus, and then he looked at the storm, and then he started to sink. And no doubt Thomas was telling the people, I doubted, I doubted Jesus. I doubted that he was alive. I doubted, and I said, all right, you're alive. You, you're, you know, I doubt you're really here in this room. And Jesus said to me, stick your hand into my side. And he did that. So they're rehearsing for these people all of the teaching and and their life with Jesus. Now, loved ones, hear me. The New Testament is the memorialization of the apostles' teaching so that we would always have it. You understand that, right? And that the practice of public worship uh, of Jesus together comes under submitting under the teaching of the New Testament. You say, well, okay, so we should be studying the New Testament, not the Old Testament. Wrong. Because Jesus said that the Old Testament will never pass away. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away. He talked about the Old Testament being inspired. On the day of resurrection, he went to the law and he went to the writings of Moses and he showed there that they prophesied his death, burial, and resurrection. So the way we practice together, the way we, we know we're tracking in true partnership and participation and fellowship, the way we know we're really together is when we're submitting under the teaching of Scripture. Of course, we talked about that last week, but... You know, I got to tell you, I have learned more about the Bible from good teachers than I have even probably on my own. Did you know that? That God applies Scripture to my heart and gets me fired up about the truths of Scripture when I'm with God's people sitting under teaching together. Now, I'm not taking away from reading it on your own, in your room, in your private time. Do that. But do not underestimate the power of the Spirit attended with the teaching of the Bible as you are with God's people 
and sitting under teaching and learning. That's when it really gets applied to your heart. So the, the apostles teaching obviously that's the Bible. And then it says the fellowship. The fellowship. Note the definite article in front of all these words. The apostles teaching. The fellowship. So this is talking obviously broadly. The whole text is talking about fellowship. But this is a special fellowship. This is like the fellowship. Like deep Something they're sharing in common deep. And what do they share in common deeply? Well, they share the Holy Spirit. They're sharing and participating in the Holy Spirit together. That their teaching is attended by the fact they're united by the Holy Spirit. Because if you look at uh, Acts chapter 2 and verse 4, it says they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Who's the Holy Spirit? He is God. He's the presence of God, the empowerment uh, of God, and He is a uh, the personal God in our life, and He's the gift of the presence of God in our life, and so that's the Holy Spirit. They all had the Holy Spirit, and then in verse thirty-eight, when people were asking Peter, "How do I become a Christian?" That's what they asked Peter. They said, "How can I become a Christian?" And he says in verse thirty-eight, Peter said to them, "Repent and be baptized, every one and every one of you, in the name of, of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins." And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 3,000 people made that decision. They got baptized. And it says here that they all got the Holy Spirit. So when they all got together, they're sharing something in common. Even though they're from all over the world. Even though they're diverse. They got different difficulties. Different adversities. They have different preferences. But the one thing that they share in common is what? Participation in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit makes diversity and unity come together possible. It's an awesome idea. They, the fellowship. And then what do they do to worship Jesus publicly? They, it says the breaking of bread. Everybody say the. You see that definite article there. That's not just talking about going to Chick-fil-A, which is impossible here, by the way. We've got to get a Chick-fil-A here. Amen? We have got to get a Chick-fil-A. I need a chicken sandwich now. Somebody go get one for you. You can't because there's no Chick-fil-A. All right? We were praying about that. You're like, what's the vision of the church? To get a, to get a Chick-fil-A in East Peoria. Who's in? Amen. All right. Everybody can become members now. All right. No, man. It's not, it's not a pizza party. It says the breaking of bread. Now, I'm not going to go there right now, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 11... Paul talks about the Lord's Supper on the night of his betrayal. And what's it say? He broke bread in the sacred meal. And he said, eat this in remembrance of me because I've given you my life. And then he takes wine and he passes it around. Remember, and they drink it and he says, this is my blood of the covenant. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Jesus is recorded by Paul as saying that every time you take this meal, every time you break bread together in a sacred occasion, you are proclaiming my death until I come back. You are preaching the gospel. This is not just a regular meal. This is a sacred meal. We take communion. They broke bread. It was a sacred meal. And they remembered the gospel. They remembered that Jesus took our place on the cross. That Jesus gave us the most unbelievable, unconditional love ever. And they're proclaiming to the world, we're all sinners. We've all fallen short. There's no good guys, bad guys. We're all in the same boat. And nobody... Hey. 
Check this out. Nobody has anything to offer to God. No church, no community, no fellowship could create a meal and bring it to God and say, Hey God, we like Chick-fil-A and we think you will too. We have nothing to offer God. The only thing we can do is receive God. God brings us the meal. God brings us the grace. God brings us the forgiveness. God brings us the redemption free of charge. And all of our public worship, all of our public worship is celebrating what we already have, not what we don't have. That is the gospel. And that's different than any religion in the world. Because you know what? It means that public church, public fellowship is not about what you can bring to God. Public fellowship is about celebrating and giving thanks for what God's already given to you. And that's where the power is. That's the difference between religion and relationship. That's the difference between legalism and real transformation. That's the difference between just informing people And seeing people transform is when they see and they experience in the fellowship of the Spirit, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, which changes lives. Apostles teaching the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and then the prayers. See, it doesn't just say they just kind of prayed, like randomly prayed. It says the prayers, like a set set of prayers. Now, what's the first set prayer that you think of? I mean, like... Like, you should do this prayer. What's the, somebody call it out. What's, what's the prayer you think of? Yeah, right, the Lord's Prayer. That's right. That's exactly right. Jesus said, you know what? Pray like this. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Notice he doesn't say my Father who's in heaven, but our Father who is in heaven. Pluralized community, fellowship. We're praying together. And so they weren't to go out onto the, onto the streets and pray like the hypocrites and show the world, we're so religious, look at us, we, we really got it together. But they were to come humbly together and to pray, and they prayed their prayers. See, fellowship, real fellowship in a church is participating together in the public worship of Jesus through these four activities. Obviously, in verse 43, this is attended by supernatural, miraculous signs and wonders. You can see this. All came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Uh, Signs and wonders was a regular thing in the book of Acts. And people ask me, you know, do you believe in miracles? And I want you to know I do believe in miracles. Do Do you believe God can still do miracles today? Of course. He's God. He can do whatever he wants. Right? But you know, it's important to remember they're miracles, they're not normals. Right? Some churches want to pretend like miracles are normals. And, and also, some churches do a teaching where they try, to, they try to make what was happening at the beginning of the church kind of normative. And if that's not really happening, then God's not really at work in that community. And I'm not going to go into all of the issues, but I would remind you of this, that in the Bible, when God was doing something, like he was bringing on something new, like he was like, okay, we're going into a new phase of world history. We're going into a new phase of redemption. It was all always attended by signs and wonders. Think about Moses and Exodus, right? You got all those miracles. You got, you know, pillars and clouds and Red Seas parting and manna from heaven and all of that. And then, and then after that, wasn't too many miracles. And then you come to Elijah and Elisha when that was a new era of God 
confronting his people through prophets. And so Elijah and Elijah had all these miracles attended. He called down fire from heaven and he made fun of Baal and all that stuff. And then Jesus came. That was a new period of redemption. Jesus came and incarnation and the ministry of Jesus, that was attended by miracles. And then here's the beginning of the church as far as having the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And so, so you see it attended and confirmed and, and affirmed by the miracles of God. They were participating together in the public worship of Jesus through these four activities, and God was at work. And you know what? God is still at work in his people through the public participation of worshiping Jesus. And you know, I just want to say this, that the key word, and one more word I want to point out, verse 42, the key word is devoted. Do you see that? Verse 42, and they devoted themselves to all of those things. They were constantly giving attention. They were devoted in other words, they expected, they expected that when they came together to publicly, formally worship Jesus, they expected that when they publicly came together to learn Scripture or to pray, they expected that God would be at work in their lives and in their world. They expected good things, despite their differences and difficulties. They expected good things to happen, that God was at work. And here's my question to you. We are not really tracking in fellowship. We are not really together unless we come together and worship Jesus publicly with high expectations that God is at work. Amen? Note how happy they are. These people are fired up. And you know, people... (laughs) You know, people, people are like, well, you know, we're in an economic recession. These people, Palestine was so poor during this time. They were going through a depression. Everybody was poor. They had nothing. There was all kinds of issues. And yet, despite all of that, they were happy. Why were they happy? Because they were together, because God was at work. And so they didn't just come together and like, well, it's 10 o'clock. And so even though I've got bedhead and I didn't drink enough coffee, I guess I'll sit here and do my church thing. Like, they were on their toes. You know what I'm saying? Like, they were like, not only are we together at church together, but God's at work. And as I hear the word, God's going to talk to me. And as we pray, God is going to move. And as we break bread, the gospel is going to encourage me and give me gratitude and give me thanks. As we do these things, God is at work. You haven't heard every sermon. You, you haven't heard uh, every prayer. You, you haven't experienced all that God has for you. God is still talking to you. And you say, you don't know what I've gone through this week. And so, especially this week, God is at work as the Bible's cracked open, as we celebrate the gospel. Expect great things. I love people who expect great things. You know, when I was... Uh, when I was growing up, I had this grandfather. I called him Papa, you know, and I loved this man. He's with the Lord now, but I love this man. And why? Because he could make the littlest things exciting. You know what I mean? Like when I would go spend the night with him at his house, he could make drinking orange juice the most exciting thing in the world. I'd wake up in the morning, he'd be like, he'd like have that big jug of orange juice. He'd be like, you want some orange juice today? And then he'd be like shaking it up. You want to shake it? You want to shake the carton? I'd be like, yeah. And I'd like start shaking the carton. And I'd give it back to him. And then he'd pour it. I swear, same brand, same carton as at home. The orange juice was better. 
It was better. Because for some reason, he expected great things to come from orange juice, you know? Now, think about God. God is still speaking. God is in relationship with us. The Holy Spirit is working in our lives as we are together in fellowship. We have to expect great things. Now, the first observation is that they had fellowship by participating in the public worship of Jesus together. The second observation, which is the result of this public worship and especially the celebration of the gospel of Jesus, is that they partnered together. Write this down, number two. They partnered together in the relief of the poor. They partnered together in the relief of the poor. Look at uh, verses 44 and 45. And all who believed were together and they had all things in common and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. What I want you to note in verse 45, you see, you see what's happening. All these people, 3,000 people, really 3,120 people are together in this church if you use the numbers of Acts. Now, all these people are together in an economic depression. Most of these people are not at home. They're far away from home, whether from Egypt or from all of those nations that are listed early in Acts. They got no food. They're poor. And so those who had would willingly, this is important, you see it in verse 45, they would sell their possessions. It does not say, it do, note this, this is important. It does not say that the church took their possessions. Do you see that? That's very important. This will keep you from cults. It doesn't say that the church said, Doug, I'm taking your house from you. Give me the more. You know what I mean? Like, it doesn't say that. It says that they sold their possessions, which means that's something you do voluntarily, willingly. I don't sell my house until I'm ready to sell my house. I don't sell my car until I'm ready to sell my car. So this is not communism, all right? All these people are like, Christians were communists. No, they were not. Because communism takes stuff from you, right? And so they willingly, voluntarily... Now, did everybody sell all of their possessions? No, you can read the rest of the book of Acts. You can see people kept their own homes. Lydia, all kinds of people kept their own homes. But these people were selling their possessions willingly, generously offering to people who were in need as the need arose. So they voluntarily, generously, together, partnered together to take care of the poor. Now listen, anytime God has brought together a people in his name, he has commanded them. It's not like a suggestion. suggestion. He has always commanded his people to take care of the poor. You go to Deuteronomy chapter 15, not right now, but it says in Deuteronomy chapter 15, especially in verse uh, four, it says, but there will be no poor among you for the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess. And then as another way of example, first uh, John chapter three, verse 16 seems to be quoting Deuteronomy or definitely referring to the Deuteronomy principle in first John chapter three, verse 16. Y'all know what John three sixteen says, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And then 1 John 3.16 talks about how we should love one another. And so he says in 1 John 
3.16. By this we know love that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods. And sees his brother in need. Yet closes his heart against him. How does God's love abide in him? Little children. Let us not love in word or talk. But in deed and in truth. So this is what God has always done with this community. It's no surprise then that when he creates the church as far as having the permanent dwelling of the Holy Spirit, that, that the Holy Spirit would inspire this community to fulfill the Deuteronomy, the Deuteronomy uh, principle. And John would follow it up and say, this is what Christians do. Christians take care, partner together to bring relief to the poor. And they do it willingly. They don't do it under compulsion. It's not like a guilt trip, like, dadgum you, don't you see that God loves you? And how could, but like the Holy Spirit, as we have fellowship, the Holy Spirit creates in us a natural desire to bring relief to the poor. Now, I want you to know something. One of the things that's always attracted me about this fellowship, about Cross Point Church, and what I'm really excited about with Cross Point Church, is not only do we stand under and submit under biblical teaching, but that we also do a ton for a church of our size to bring relief to the poor. That food pantry, I had a much bigger church in Norman, Oklahoma, right? A big church. We had a food pantry. It was lame compared to that thing over there. D is blowing the doors off at getting food to people who need food. And that's what we do. And the fact that she's having a hard time getting enough people at, these, at, at this deal where we distribute food, that's crazy talk, man. You should do that because as you partner together in bringing relief to the poor, whether it's handing out food or giving generously, dude, that is, that's when we're really coming together. That's fellowship. Uh, Another thing we do, we give 10% of all of our income to missionaries all over the world. We got a young couple. I don't know. How old are they, Isaac? How old? old? Uh, The one in Zambia, Africa. 29 and 30 years old. Babies. I mean, kids. (laughs) Babies for Jesus. And, dude, they're in Zambia. You know what they're doing? They're taking care of kids, little babies with HIV virus. And, they, and through their actions, they're just demonstrating the love of Christ. Do you know that spiritually we had HIV? Do you know that spiritually we had disease? Do you know that spiritually we were impoverished? Do you know that spiritually we were homeless? Do you know that spiritually we had no God and no hope and God came into our neighborhood and he served us spiritually and the Bible says that he became poor to make the many rich? And how is it that believers can receive that grace and then not practically live that out in their world? And that's what we're doing as a church. And that's what this couple in Zambia that we give money to is doing. We got another couple who are about to start supporting we're fixing to support this couple. I think they're even like younger, maybe a little bit older. Are they all at the same age? 30? Babies. <laughs> ba- this couple is their children, all right? And they, they're missionaries. And they're going down into the Amazon. They're like, you know, they're like in a canoe in the Amazon in South America, all right? And there are like weird, funky type of alligators. Have y'all ever seen that Man versus Nature show? Anyways. And they're canoeing down an Amazon that nobody's been down who's from civilization. And they're taking out pythons with, you know, 
hammer axes so they can reach these unreached tribes with the gospel and serve them. And this couple that's from the States, that, that they're just like you and me. They got iPhones and they love computers and the whole thing. They are living barely on bread and water. And we're making sure, and we're going to make sure that they got food. And we're going to make sure that their ministry is supported. Because that is what Christian fellowship does. We are generous. And we make sure that Christian, the reality of being a Christian always leads to social responsibility on some level. Has to. We proclaim the gospel in word and in deed. And that's exactly what's happening here. How, I mean, seriously. How did, how did Christians change the Roman world? How did they do it? They were not legalized. They were a little band of uneducated people. They had no sophistication, no elegance. They followed a teacher who had never left more than 100 miles from his home, who never wrote a book, a so-called, from a world's perspective, a Jewish rabbi. How did followers of this Jewish rabbi really change the world? Number one, they got the Holy Spirit. Number two, the Holy Spirit through them provided for needs and preached the gospel faithfully. And that's what we have to do. And we got to keep doing it. And I got to tell the next generations of Crosspoint, we got a lot to live up to because the past generations have been very generous. All right? We don't have any debt. We are financially sound because of generosity. And we got awesome ministries for our size of church. And we got to keep moving forward. And we can't stop. And we are not really together unless we continue to be generous and partner together to bring relief to the poor. All right, finally. So my first observation, they were participating in public worship of Jesus. My second observation is they were partnering together to bring relief to the poor. And then my final uh, observation about true fellowship is that they were praising God in the presence of outsiders. We are not really together in fellowship unless we're praising God in the presence of outsiders, verses 46 and following. This is about their witness. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. These are happy people. These are not bitter, beer-faced Christians. Amen? It's like, you know, like these people were happy. In verse 47, praising God and having favor with all the people. One English translation says, giving thanks in the presence of many people. But having favor with all the people and the Lord added to their number day by day, those who were being saved. Now they were worshiping in two, they were praising God in two places. The temple where everybody gathered and then from house to house. So they were going to temple, worshiping God, praising God. Outsiders were watching this going on, going, what are they doing over there? You know, and they're praising God in their presence. And then they would get their life group sermon questions, go back to their house and talk about the sermon that they just heard. Now I'm making that part up. But anyways... But that's what they were doing. But the important thing, the principle that I see at work here is that they were doing it in the presence of outsiders. You say, why is that important? The reason why that's important is because it's important that Christian fellowship be an open fellowship and not a closed fellowship. That Christian fellowship be... 
that a, a Christian fellowship be contagious, that Christian fellowship would be welcoming to outsiders, that Christian fellowship would not say it's us versus you, but we're all in the same boat. That Christian fellowship would do all that's possible to make what they believe understandable to the outside world. Do you see how they're, they're, they're rubbing up against, they're elbowing their way, and they're allowing, they're allowing unchurched outsiders to see them and, and to kind of take part and to go, man, we like this. Outsiders are saying that. And the question for us is, it's real simple. Is Christian fellowship, here's the question, is Christian fellowship for unbelievers? Is, does the church exist for unbelievers? Or does, the, does church and Christian fellowship exist for believers? That's the big question today. So one group over here says, no, the church exists for unbelievers. Look at the Great Commission. Look at this. Lord's adding to their number daily, 3,000 in one day. We exist only for unbelievers. And you know where I come from, there are more mega churches than there are Big Macs. You know what I'm saying? There are mega churches out, and they believe that they believe that the church fellowship exists only for unbelievers. And you know, I'm not, no, I'm not exaggerating what they do. They offer people Mountain Dew before services. I'm not joking. They get them all hopped up on caffeine. They make smoke come out of chairs. And they kick beach balls. And they go, Jesus, 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 Jesus. Right? And people go, unchurched people are like, I never knew church could be like that. You know what I mean? And it just grows. And these churches get huge. Why? Because they're so focused on getting people in the church. Now, the other extreme, the other extreme is, we're not about them at all. Those ungodly, pagan, un- I'm sorry, it's a southern accent. Again, I'm, wor- I'm working on it. Next week, I'll bring out the Illinois thing. But anyways, but they're, but they're going, they're, <laughs> but they're, those pagans, and we're going to get our canned food and our bullets, and we're going to go up into the hills and wait for the second coming which we just charted out at our last conference. You know what I'm saying? And they, they leave. They got a holy huddle, and they go up into the mountains, and they're like, they, they literally start talking in codes. They start talking in ways that unbelievers can't understand. They go so far high above people's heads at church or in their witness of Jesus or in whatever that they might as well be speaking in tongues. And there's no one who has the gift of interpretation to help people understand what in the world they're talking about. And they call it godliness because they're so confusing. What I see is not an either or. What I see is a both and as far as the principle of they're reaching out. They're, they're wanting other people to be a part of this community, but they're certainly not watering down what the message says. But if Acts says anything, I mean, if Acts says anything at all, it says this, that the church has a responsibility to make sure that what they believe about Jesus is understandable to surrounding cultures. People need to understand the music. People need to understand the sermons. People need to understand the lifestyle. People need to understand what you're talking about when you're giving thanks to God and they're praising God. And people are going, I, man, I, 
That's what I needed all along. And the Lord is adding to their number. And what's so exciting is, is that it's more about cheerfulness in our praise than it is about cleverness, isn't it? They're just happy. God does the converting. God does the adding. God does the conversion and growth. We just do the cheer part. You don't even have to be smart to be a Christian. I mean, you can be. We really need smart Christians. But you know what I'm saying. <laughs> I shouldn't have said that. Can we edit that out of the, out of the website version? <laughs> no, I'm not saying that Christians check their brain at the door. No, we bring all of our brains. It's all good. We're smart. But I'm just saying it's so simple. It's not simplistic, but it's so simple, isn't it? We praise God together. So my... <laughs> I can't believe I said that. First observation is that we worship Jesus together publicly. We participate together publicly in the worship of Jesus. Very specific things. Learning the Bible, praying, taking communion. The second thing is we partner together to bring relief to the poor. We give back. We're generous people. We have a loose grip, not a tight grip on our stuff, on our things. We're giving more than we're taking And the third thing is, is that we're praising God in such a way to where unbelievers can understand. We're praising God in the presence of outsiders. And we're saying, come join us. We invite you to join us in giving God thanks. Now, there's two applications that I want to give to you. Very specific applications to us as a church. And these applications are going to help us to grow in our fellowship together so that we can ensure that we're growing in our togetherness, that we're really together I do not know how to get this done in the 21st century without life groups and without a small group ministry. I think that that is, we've got to get together in homes, and I think we've got to do life groups. So here's what we're doing. Isaac talked about it, but that regroup thing on Wednesday night, did you all hear that announcement? Did you hear that one? Okay, so that that Wednesday night regroup thing is a huge, everybody say huge, huge, huge moment in the life of our church. Because what we're going to do with that regroup thing is we're going to come together, we're going to eat, we're going to pray, I'm going to teach, but we're going to talk about our life groups and we're going to get you connected to life groups. We're going to encourage life group leaders, we're going to add new life group leaders, and it's just going to be huge. In fact... I would say this, if you have plans on Wednesday nights in the month of September, I command you to cancel those plans and to come to Wednesday night. Amen? I can't command you. Oh, yeah, except for the youth group people. Yes, I'm sorry, Ashley. Yeah, y'all good. Y'all take care of the youth. But but you see what I'm saying is, is that we have to do this. So this is not like, oh, it's a Wednesday night thing, and I think I'll come and eat some of the lasagna and the beans, and then I'll go home before the Bible study starts. Like, it's not like that. This thing is on purpose. We're going to have activities for your kids that are great. Sign up. Let us know. But this is the way that we're going to grow in the trajectory of our togetherness and our fellowship and our purpose and our vision is going to, is going to go. And so you've got to come to the regroup thing on Wednesday night. Four weeks. I'm asking four weeks from you in the month of September, and then we'll launch our life groups in, in October, and then we'll be meeting together publicly on Sunday, and from house to house, we'll be breaking bread and praying. And I'm just really excited about that. 
Here's the second thing is, is that if we're going to really connect, speak the language of the people, really help people to see us praise God, and, and really, if we're going to build our church for people who aren't even here yet, then we've got to use technology. How many of y'all know that people are living their life off of, like, iPhones? Amen? A- Who's got an iPhone? You are so cool. <laughs> right? Uh, um, how many of y'all have a Facebook page? Good Lord. Okay. See, uh, how many of y'all have a Twitter account? Probably not as many. Okay. Doug has Isaac. Okay. So listen, here's the deal. Churches have to connect with people in that realm to get them to actually come out of their shell and to join us. And we've got this new program called the city where we're going to connect together uh, through, it's almost like a Facebook for the church. We'll be able to communicate, connect our life groups together, put questions and, and stuff like that. It's like, it's like, it's the best thing. It really is going to be phenomenal. And as we build off of that city, and as you start hearing promotions for the city, get involved in that. When, when we have a kiosk and it has a camera and it wants to take your picture and get your information, go do that. Cause then we're going to all get connected and be able to communicate. And when you need a job, you can put that need on the city. When you want to sell your treadmill, you can put that in the marketplace on the city. When, when we want to communicate, it's going to happen. Now you think that's so silly. Like, we just talked about Acts, and now you're connecting that to, like, a computer program? I am. Because that's how we're going to begin and continue to grow as a fellowship and really connect and get people involved in real community. I've gone long, just like I did the first service, so let me, let me pray. Father, thank you for fellowship. Thank you for togetherness and thank you Lord Jesus that when you died for us and you rose on the third day that you did that not to make us better individuals but you did that to make us the people of God Holy Spirit we need your help to really continue and to grow in a common purpose We need your help to continue to grow in public worship, poor relieving partnerships, and praising God in the presence of outsiders, that we would praise God in such a way, and we would talk about God in such a way, and we would would teach, and we would do life and do small groups in such a way to where unbelievers would understand, and they would ultimately approve of and you would save them and help them to join our community make us a community for mission make us a community that is a light to the world and salt to the earth make us a community that doesn't take from this world but gives to this world life-giving love and in relationship and forgiveness and redemption use us Make us your body, your bride. Make us your hands. Make us your feet, Jesus. Make us your people. And lead us as our chief shepherd into true, deep, abiding, spiritual, practical, biblical fellowship. I pray this over our church in Jesus' name. Amen.